Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow! Did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus. dot com slash acast and use code acast for twenty percent off your first purchase. Welcome back to the Farms Advice Podcast, where we talk everything agribusiness to grow and optimize your farm. I'm your host, Jack Creswell, and this week we're doing something a little bit different to the normal schedule. We've called in the big guns and are speaking to Pitt Courtney. You may have seen her on your Sunday's ABC Landline series presenting the next best Aussie farmer and also the updates around the industry. In this episode, we'll dive into her role and how she got there, but also the stories she covered. She's got a story in here that she outlines that's amazing to listen to and just goes against the norm. But in the end, time won and it also showed the proven practice. The proof is in the pudding, so make sure you listen in to her favourite story. But also listen out to the common traits of people that she has seen to have succeeded in the farming game. We both sort of lost track of time on this one and we let it roll, which is more important for you to get the benefit out of this. But also, Pip is a really amazing speaker and I just couldn't stop her with her experience in the industry as the overseer of agriculture, which is why we called the episode The Overseer of Agriculture. So enjoy this episode. I really did. Speaking to it um, is really it was really good to speak to her through the medium of this podcast. So thanks, Pip, for your time. But nonetheless, you'll have to extend your lunchtime break for this one, though. It's pretty long. Also, don't forget to share this one with your mates. It's one not to miss out on. But let's waste no more time and let's get into it. Welcome to the Farmswise podcast, Pip. Amazing to have you on. You're probably one of the biggest profiles we've had on. And you're like we watch you religiously every Sunday on the landline. Over the years, you're bringing the information to the farmers on a Sunday. How's everything going for you? And what's this 
lockdown done for you currently? You locked down at the moment? Uh, well, I'm based in Brisbane, so yep. we've been pretty lucky compared to my colleagues in who live in Sydney and Melbourne. Um, but it has changed how we work. Uh, the first few weeks last year, the ABC had us all at home and every single program we needed was on our um, laptops, which some of them require a lot of grunt and we weren't able to have them before. So now I've, I pretty much I can I go up into my um, dressing room and sit on the floor and put jackets around my head and put my voice down on, just with a little app on my phone. Uh, I can record uh, interviews on Skype and Teams and Zoom and then just send them to the editor and sometimes the editor's actually working from home. We've had farmers who are really good with their drones who send vision. So it's, it's been an interesting time because for a while there we weren't allowed to do anything unless it was a day, a day trip. We couldn't travel. Yeah. So last year when we got to do our first trip away to stay away, we went to Dolby and it was like going to Paris. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, totally. Getting out and able to do something. Yeah. So there's been a lot of stories about how lockdown has changed things for ag and um, we've um, just been pretty much uh, after the first couple of weeks just back to normal. Um, but I pretty much work from home now, going once a week and to do makeup and then we go out and do the hostings and then I come home and turn the heater on to 9 million so nobody in the office <laughs> can growl at me anymore. <laughs> and um, it's quite nice. I've got a beautiful view out my window. So... What more yeah, do you need? Yeah, absolutely. That's great that the farmers are able to send through the videos through like by using a drone for the for your footage for the landline show. Oh, yeah, my story Sunday week, which is about the grain industry, has got some awesome drone vision supplied by two farmers. I mean, yep. they could work for landline and our boys have to do a do a very expensive course and get approved and, and have a ticket almost like a pilot. And I'm amazed. Some of the farmers are really, really good. They've got a great eye. Yeah, absolutely. And the technology is there for farmers currently for them to be able to do that. But let's get into it and see who Pip Courtney is and your role within agriculture. What's your connection to Australian ag? Uh, well, I grew up in uh, the most suburban of settings in Launceston in Tasmania. Um, my dad was a journalist. He couldn't change a light bulb. Um, not practical at all. Yep. But my grandma yep. lived on a farm. Uh, my a couple of uh, aunts did as well. And I always loved visiting and couldn't understand why when I was about seven, my parents wouldn't let me go and live with my grandmother in central Victoria on the farm because they had my brother and my sister. Yep. And I pitched the business case that, Grandma needed me and they had one of each. Breeding program had worked. They had a boy and a girl and I was access to requirements. I was quite stunned when um, they said no. But I, I still remember the day I arrived. There was a, it was shearing time and there were sheep in the yards and there was a pony with its head over the a gate. There were chickens and sheep dogs. And I just thought this was the most magical place and it's very lucky. There was a lovely farm um, manager there who, oh, sorry, the chief farm hand. He and his yeah. wife didn't have kids, so he'd be there at 7am every morning to take me and I just spent time with him in the Land Cruiser and asked 9 million questions and just loved it. Went back every year and um, would have loved to have lived on a farm. But um, And I studied ag in grade 12 because it was yeah. an easy pass. 
<laughs> and, um, I just loved it. Just thought it was fascinating, but I was told you can't do ag at uni because your science skills in well, they're ratchet basically. And <laughs> I always wanted to be a journalist, and I never really thought about ag journalism. But the opportunity came up after I'd been at the ABC in Tassie for about eight nine years to take a job with Landline, and I grabbed it, and that was 1993, and uh, haven't looked back. I love it. A few, a few years down the track now, and you've got a lot of foundational work, like in journalism. You're well known within the industry, but for was it when you went to university, you found out that you wanted to become an ag journalist? We just went in there generally. To become an ag? Uh, no, I didn't think about ag journalism at all. Uh, I, my dad was a journalist, and I just wanted to be like a lot of farmers or kids. Yep. I just wanted to be the mini female version of Michael Courtney, and work in a newspaper. And I was obsessed with news and news coverage. And we had, you know, four or five newspapers in the house every single day. We listened to radio news all the time and watched every current affairs program, read books about journalism. Um, so it wasn't really a plan. I just, but I had a horse and always was, you know, every spare moment was spent on, on a horse visiting mates' farms and stuff like that. And it really didn't occur to me. I don't know why. I sort of look back on it and go, ah. But I think I needed that journalism grounding in day-to-day news coverage. And then, you, you know, the, the, the career path is you, you get your grounding in news Radio news, you do 45-second stories. TV news yep. is a minute 20, minute 30. And then you move into, if you want to, current affairs, which is long form. So I suppose I took the traditional route. And, um, yeah, sort of it just all fell into place really by accident. No great planning on my part. Yeah, well, I think it is quite seamless that long form is what agriculture sort of needs. The landline, like you do get a lot of information out of the show within that time period you can't have the show running or a little snippet of it for two minutes can you it wouldn't run too well well i think that's what the audience likes about the program when we first started we didn't have enough um staff to run what would be traditionally like seven or eight minute stories so we ran longer stories and we actually found and while it was sort of frowned upon by colleagues in other departments who go, oh, my God, who's going to watch 17 minutes about the rice industry or meat, meat industry politics or wool politics uh, or even just, just a general ag topic. We found people in, not only in the industry would hang in but other people in ag and also urban audience because urban viewers have always loved the show because the brief is find the best farmers in Australia and tell their stories. So, um no offence to the bottom 50%, but, you know, we, we want to tell the stories of the innovators, the risk takers, the people who wake up every morning wanting to, wanting to be better than they were yesterday. And that's what urban people really love. And, yeah, we could do 20-minute stories and people would love it. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, yes, I mean, some of them could be quite complex. And I think long form with the beautiful... Um, landscapes that we we get to film with our really talented cameramen and with the, the the great characters it just lends itself to having that longer treatment yeah definitely and i think that how you do see different snippets like it where livestock sheep 
And then there's something like the rice industry comes on for a story. I think you can really learn something from cross-sector knowledge and maybe even implement something into your own enterprise as a farmer watching the show, watching the leaders, innovators, as you say. I absolutely agree. And when I'm thinking about a story, particularly if it's about somebody or a business or a particular element of an industry that's been really successful, I've, I think now what is the template here for success? What, what is the approach? What's the model? What's the method? How can I extract um, the, the, the guts of the reasons for success so that if say, say it's about citrus the citrus yep. industry or a citrus producer. How will a sheep producer get something out of that? How will a oyster farmer in Tasmania get something out of that or a mango producer? And so that I'm looking for, for templates that are, that are portable so anybody can, can go, nah, what that guy said three minutes 50 in, we could do that even though he's on the other side of the country, completely different in um, industry and different um, climate and weather, soil, whatever. And I actually got a, an email in my second year, 1994, from a panel beater in Sydney yeah. who said that he oh, hello, <laughs> uh, he said that he found a story I did on someone in the wool industry um, incredibly life-changing because he now reassessed his um, approach to success. And, and that that was just something where I went, well, that's what I want my stories to be. Yeah, right. I don't want someone to go, well, I don't grow oranges. Why would I want to watch that story? I want them to go, I'm interested in how you are, how you succeed. And um, so that that's what I'm looking for. And there are that we get the occasional um, snipe where we might do so, and it's so, a story on somebody who might be niche. Yeah. And this and it really annoys me. Um, <laughs> And I'll say, oh, what's that got to do with agriculture? And I'll just go, it's the template. Like it's not, you, mm. you can have a lot of volume, you can have 20,000 sheep and not be making any money or you can be like this person that we've just done a story on who's got 500 and has cut out the middleman, is selling to the best chefs in Australia at a 200% premium to what you're getting and they're sort of missing the point that it's about niche, finding a niche that suits you for ethical reasons or what what makes what yeah. what gets you in in the soul for what you want to do but it's about success and i also think to you know cuz some people will give me a ring and a lot of people when ag my buddies too well Pip, what did you do that for oh god i was falling around laughing about the you know emus dash alpacas dash whatever's and, and I'll say, I think you might have missed the point. Oh, no, 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 I've got, you know, 10,000 cattle, blah, blah, blah. Um, and, yeah, so there's, we're really looking for profitable businesses. I'm not yeah. going to do something. I don't want to do stories on people who aren't making money or, or they've got a business, but you know that it's been backed up by a trust fund or, or yeah, um, yeah, totally. income from another area. And I also think that a lot of those niche people that, you know, we might go and film at farmers markets or something like that. Um, they're actually doing the heavy lifting for the PR in ag. You know, yep. they're actually doing the face-to-face -face stuff with people who might have a view about whether farmers are cruel to their animals or whether farmers flog their country. But every week at farmers markets, those people that some of my critics might have a crack at me about about I feel that 
these guys should be sending the big guys a bill. Here's what we've done to raise the, um, the profile and the acceptance and the respect for farmers in the community. So rant over. Yeah, that's actually a great way to put it, that the farmers markers are actually the face of what we're doing behind the scenes. Livestock producer cropping, no matter how many acres you have, um, you need to be profitable. And just looking at that with the frameworks, as you said, there's more so why I wanted to get you on just to see like what does what have you seen over the years? What sort of frameworks people can implement or they have already in their own enterprise? So have you seen those enterprises having similar frameworks that like are successful and are innovative? I think it's more an attitude. And I think that attitude is what is the latest information? I think that success is when you say, what was I doing last year? What was I doing five years ago? And if you're still doing the same thing, most yep. of the people that I do stories about who are successful are not doing what they did a year ago, five years ago and 10 years ago. That what dad did and grandpa did or the bloke up the road does. That's, you don't just stop. I mean, technology hasn't stopped. My industry hasn't stopped. No industry has stopped. Otherwise we wouldn't have cars or phones or whatever. So it's the people who are always constantly looking for how can I be 1% more productive with my animals? How can my soils be 10% better next year? How can my tree cover, which will bring in animals, um, increasing the biodiversity, which means we've got more birds, which means we'll have a lot of the bugs being eaten in the orchard. The people who never stop thinking. And one cattle producer, for example, goes to New Zealand every year to hang out with the top 10 dairy farmers because he figures I'm a grass farmer first. I have no cattle if I have no grass. So who are the best grass farmers in, in you know, um, the Southern Hemisphere? The New Zealand dairy farmers. He's a Queenslander, completely different um, climate and soils, but he's down there picking their brains. So it's, and as one farmer said to me, I don't want to sit here and go, holy shit, to get, to make myself profitable, I need a 20% increase in my profitability or productivity next year he said it's much better if you're doing the one percenters every year here and it's because he said it's in in 20 years if you're doing a one percent here and a three percent there then your business is always going forward and when I first started zero till was just starting yep. and the some of the early adopters wow one, one guy said to me we we hear ourselves my son and I being bagged by everybody on the two-way and the young fellow who'd come back to the farm and said, hey, Dad, why don't, we, why don't we try this? His dad didn't go to the pub for two years. So they, but, so there's a perseverance in the face of criticism, I think, too. That's something that I've noticed that the best farmers do. And, of course, when the drought hit around parks where this um, family were, they had a crop where nobody else did. I think this is in 1994, 95. And um, next thing, next year they're holding a field day. <laughs> So yeah. everyone's coming and having a look. So I suppose the benefit of me being an old duck is I've watched that go from being something that was radical, uh, a lot of fence sitters, and then with each successive drought, more people joined the revolution, and now it's not a revolution anymore. Um, but, you know, imagine how far ahead some of the early adopters are. If they were 10 years ahead rather than old mate down the road. So, um, yeah, so I think it's always looking for that 
where can I get that improvement? And sometimes some of the best people you or the most successful people you meet have made that decision that sharing their farm with wildlife. Yeah. It's yeah. it might not actually have a column in their accounting, but it makes them feel better about farming and they're protecting their social license further down the track too. Yeah, definitely. It all sort of ties in. Two points I got from that is for farmers, what sort of tips would you give them on finding being um, up to date with all the information in searching there? Like I find farmers are a bit of a lug before they get to the other side. They need to just make that leap. Like the Queensland farmer, just like the flight is a, that leap across, literally. Um, how, what would you say for a farmer to find new information? Just start today or? Sure. Yep, there is so much information out there. Like I'm drowning in it. Like I get yep. hundreds of emails a day from all the people, all the organisations that I subscribe to. So I can only imagine that you're busy on the day-to-day -day stuff. When do you lift your head up and look at the horizon rather than tomorrow or next week? But when do you look to five years' time and ten years' time and look at your grandkid and go, well, what am I doing now to build something for her or him? And one great farmer I met who completely transformed his property in Western um, Victoria, which was a windswept, treeless, horrible place for sheep and humans, he planted oaks. Yeah. And therefore, his great, great, great grandchildren to harvest, you know. Uh, so I think people who look at the horizon, see what information is out there, and sometimes it's um, a consultant who will sift through it. If you don't have time, if you're too busy in the day-to-day, Find somebody who can sift through the mountain of information that's out there and find what's appropriate for you and find someone that you can work with. Um, and one farmer said to me, he had the, the lady at the Roma airport said, you, apart from the people in the gas industry, you and your wife have more flights out of here than anyone we know, anybody else in the district. Where are you going? And he said, conferences. And she said, oh, a lot of farmers like to stay home. And he said to me, if my farm falls over because I'm away for, for a week, what sort of shit show am I running? And so he goes off to conferences. He meets people uh, who have similar ideas. Again, maybe not the same type of farm. And um, he's just always thinking. So I think if you can absorb the information, go to conferences, meet the best in the business, be inspired by them, meet the Nuffield guy down the road, um, find good consultants. But I think it's just about saying this place has to be better, more profitable next week, next, sorry, next year, next yeah. five years, next 10 years, and for the next generations, how do we go about doing that? Because I think if you reverse it, and ask anybody who's successful, are you doing what you did 20 years ago or what your grandpa did? No one would say yes. I don't yep. think so. And if you if you find someone, let me know and I'll go and do a story on Absolutely. We will pass them on if we come across someone. But something I think about is optimising rather than scaling out. Like you don't need another 5,000, 10,000 acres. Are you saying that's something with the innovators? They're looking to maximise what their soil can do? Not flogging the shit out of it, but yeah, managing. Well, that was it. the topic of a recent story that I did, and I, I think we've done a lot of stories on people who 
their success sometimes is based on scale, buying a farm next door, scaling up. Um, but I think regener regenerative agriculture is really starting to challenge that mindset that if you've got your soil or, you, I don't know, you've got 2,000, 20,000 hectares, if your soil can support more grass and more animals and get into, be last into drought first out, take use of, particularly in Queensland, where you can have you know, spectacularly um, violent rain events, the, the regen farmers that I talk to in Queensland say after a couple of years where, you know, that might be, they're working on their soil, the big rain events happen and the runoff isn't happening. It's going into their soil and they're banking it. So I think some people are now saying, rather than buying a farm next door, why don't we make this one just ultra productive? Like pretend we live in England. And I think that's a really great way and it means you don't get into trouble if suddenly... Um, the bank starts charging um, bigger interest rates and you can really work on your patch of land. So I think that's a, you know, hat, hat, tip my hat to you. I think that's a, it's a new and emerging um, idea. You don't have to go, oh, you need to buy a farm up the road. And a lot of successful people I see buy farms, not maybe not next door, but out of their area to give them some protection if the weather goes bad. But, yeah, I, I just, you see... I feel like, um, you know, I was there when um, Zero Teal was just starting to get going and now I feel like I'm starting, I'm doing stories with the early adopters with regenerative agriculture and it's really exciting. But you only, you only have to look on Twitter, do a story on Regen Ag and it's like yeah. throwing a match and some diesel in there. People, because some people get quite um, defensive, like what do you mean? Is the implication that... I'm not doing the right thing and buy my land and who do you think you are? But I just think, you know, get your defences down, have a look, go to a field day. There could be two ideas out of the 10 that you hear at the field day that you might want to adopt, but there's definitely something there and I'm seeing it with a lot of the really good farmers. Yeah, definitely. The proof's in the pudding. And that leads me to my next one, like dealing with the hecklers for those that like disapprove of these new ways of farming or improving what our what we're doing on farm with like regenerative agriculture is copying a lot of flack um for those starting early how have you seen like farmers deal with that you said one went into hiding from the pub for two years yeah that was the zero till back in the back in the 90s but the people i meet go we see it every day our soil's better whether we, we can see the results and i think with regen regenerative ag you actually see results quite quickly you don't have to wait yeah. it's not like planting trees where you have to wait 20 years to see how tall it gets or 10 years so i actually find them they have hides like rhinos they just go we're right you you worry about your patch of dirt i'll worry about mine and they don't they don't get upset about it at all and then when people growl at me for oh what are you running that, that story about that person i just go look we're here to do stories about all sorts of different approaches to being excellent and if you're going to get upset about that um you know what's going on with you and so i find them i find that most of them just go no we don't care let the criticism roll on because we can yeah. see it and, well the proof's in the and pudding and they're going to be the more profitable the pudding, yeah yeah and particularly in a drought year and then you know we've had lots of rain in the, um, at the start of the year in queensland and one of the properties that we visited, 
um, they were like, well, the, the water was sheeting off next door, wasn't sheeting off our place. That water is now stored in our soils, just like yeah. a bank, you know. We'll be there with the ATM card taking the, using that water. But um, the people who the water was sheeting off into the creek, they were losing topsoil and the water wasn't staying on their place. But, um, and I, I think there was a, I went to Iowa in the late 90s to do a story on carbon farming over there. And in the late was, 90s, very early. Yes, late 90s. Yeah, and because they were having a getting a carbon trading market there, and I met this gorgeous old um, um, farmer, and the the soil in Iowa. I mean, when they dig soil pits, I mean the profile for the soil is just taller than me. Yeah, <laughs> tell him about the old ancient soils in Australia, and he's he can't believe it. But he said um, he loved ploughing. He actually got criticised by his neighbours. The whole heap of them got together and did an intervention and said, our valley is now ugly because you leave the stubble in and it's ruined the patchwork of dark brown and, and green or yellow or whatever. And he's like, oh, I'm not doing that. And then when they came to visit him, they saw that he had cemented his plough into the front yard and turned it into a garden ornament. And he said he wanted to do that so he'd never be tempted to use it again. But he said he had... A, a light bulb moment when a consultant came to him and said, you really should be um, going zero till. And he said, oh, no, oh, I love ploughing. I just love it. He said, what do you love about it? I love the smell. And he said, this guy just looked at him and said, that is the smell of your soil dying. That beautiful smell, it's oxidising. And he said, you know, he'd been reading all this technical information, he'd had the consultants in and it wasn't that just one sentence changed his life and he was getting much better crops but it, you know, apart from being um, upset by the visual police in the valley um, so I think that I'm, I'm really privileged when I get to hear those little light bulb moments and um, they become light bulb moments in my sort of um, journalism journey I hate that word but it's, it's late <laughs> it's late in the day brain's a bit slow so I, I love that idea and I think there's a lot of regen farmers who they, they must have those little light bulb moments when they go and they put the spade in the soil and see the worms and see how friable it is and um, and see what, what happens after it rains. And I don't know, yeah. you're doing it. So you must have light bulb moments out there where you go, this is working. Yeah, we've had a few of those, which is like really good to see and hopefully a few more once we, like we need to probably adopt a bit more technology just to improve the way we work. But I suppose, like the hecklers, hopefully they have a few light bulb moments coming around the corner for them. Um, it's it's a bit sad to see like that the industry could be much better if they got on board. Because um, if we optimize our patch of dirt and my neighbour and his neighbour are able to, the industry as as a whole will be able to reach this hundred billion dollar we're talking about by twenty thirty or even earlier. I think it's human nature to be defensive when you think you're doing things really, really well um, and then somebody says, well, I think that you should be changing track. They, probably, they put a lot of effort into be doing things the conventional way and, you know, we get some criticism, um, you know, that what's wrong with conventional and why are you making that a dirty word? And it's like we're not making a dirty word. We're just saying here's another way of doing things um, I'm not going to tell anybody how they have to do it. I'm not saying conventional is not appropriate, but it's just about 
here's some ideas. We're going to throw them in the air. Um, I, I welcome ideas how I could get be, be better at my job. Um, I think they've got to ask why, why be so defensive. Yeah, that's it. Hopefully they just hit their light bulb moment like that. Because um, on the podcast, I'm trying to probably reach those people that aren't listening to the episodes each week because they're the non-innovators and I'm just trying to get them on board to start looking for opportunities and to be more transparent about learning new information. Um, it'd be really good to do that. But let's move on. If you weren't a journalist today, Pip, what would you be doing? Uh, well, I nearly quit journalism after 18 months because I was really bad at it and I wanted to be a wool classer. My step-grandfather had sheep and he showed sheep and I just I would just follow him around like a puppy, my grandmother said, just asking questions. Why, 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 why? Why is that ram better than that one? Why did that one get a blue ribbon and that one got a red one? And so I love sheep and I love the atmosphere of shearing sheds. So I nearly went off and became a wool classer. And if I could have any job in the world, regardless of my skills, I would be a big cat vet. By the looks of your jumper, you do like your cats, yeah. don't you? Yeah. <laughs> I'd love to, yeah, it's a bucket list just to touch every big cat in the world. Yeah. Jaguar, well, it's a great bucket list. I don't know how achievable it is. <laughs> some very hard to but catch yeah, cats always, out there. Yeah, the idea of um, taking your horse and a horse float being and having a, a dog and just travelling from shed to shed and then occasionally when I was in the area popping in to see various relatives at Holbrook and um, Central Victoria, to me the idea of being a wool classer I'm sure there will be wool classes who can email me or call me and say, you're an idiot, you've totally romanticised and it's not that great a job, but I, that would be. And I think when I retire, I'd go and study wool classing just for the hell of it. Yeah. When we were kids, we used to throw the skirting like at each other. How dirty it was, it didn't really matter. The dirtier, the better and back I loved, then. And I loved hanging out with the shearers at Smoko. You know, I remember when I was about six or seven and they would pop me up on a, on a bale and they were, they were just delightful. And I, I came from a, a house where there weren't scones and biscuits and my grandmother had to do, you know, morning and afternoon tea smoko and they and she could never repeat. Like, they were pretty tough. How dare she? <laughs> and I just loved hanging around with, with them and that was back in the day when, you know, they'd turn up and they'd stay. They didn't sort of go home at night and I just thought they were great. I think my grandmother wasn't too. Back but yeah, a, a wool shed is a place I would love to. Um, I would have loved to have have some skills there. Yeah, the Lanolins brought you in. The smell of the wool sheds also like quite nice. And if you're growing up in that as a young kid, it does bring that nostalgia back, of course. And I love like my one of my cousins is a wool grower, and he's persisted during the downturn. He's in Tasmania. And, He's just every year his clip gets better and better and better. And I just find it fascinating that a decision you make about breeding or buying in a ram or something that 10 years ago affects, affects you for so long and it doesn't really come to fruition for, for you know, 10 years. I just find that really, really 
fascinating because what if you pull the wrong rein with a ram and then you've got to go and fix it and um i just find the whole uh, anything to do with breeding animals and try to achieve a goal i find that really fascinating yeah, i think my dream role if i wasn't doing what i was doing and had a time would be geneticist knowing the genetics of like animals and how each reacts because that process of being a wool grower what you do now is going to impact your wool in five years time mm. And, and the same about the I remember reading something about they introduced in the early 1900s this really super, super wrinkly sheep and it stuffed up the industry for like 20 years and they had to, to actually breed all those crappy genetics out. Um, so, yeah, I, I do, do, I think on my shelves back there, there's quite a few books on the, on the wool industry. I might have know, to b- borrow there. them sometime. <laughs> you never know. I might be the 70-year-old lady who people go, do I know you from somewhere? What do you, oh, my gosh. Oh, yeah, I retired ages ago. I'm you might be classing. interviewed on Landline how to keep going as a wool classer <laughs> at 70. When they do stories about old people in ag. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. But moving on into Landline, the amazing show that it is and what it brings to Australian agriculture, what's a story for you that stands out? What was it and what did it hit the mark with you? How did it hit the mark? Uh, well, it is, it is Mr. Mr. Tree Man of Hamilton in Western Victoria, um, John Fenton, who died not long ago, which uh, I really look forward to his phone calls when he would ring me up and say, hello, dear girl. And I'd say, oh, John Fenton, how are you? He'd say, how do you know it was me? I'd say, well, nobody else calls me, dear girl. <laughs> um, so he, and apologies to anybody who's heard this story before, but it really is my favourite he went to his future father-in-law and said he would like to ask for his daughter's hand in marriage. And he said, you can marry my daughter if you plant trees around your godforsaken farm. Because there were about seven or eight manky pine trees and it was just this windswept, horrible, barren property. And um, he started and he never stopped. He predated land care by about 30 years. He tried forestry trees. He tries, he tried planting down fence lines he did trees with six across with five five to eight meters of grazing more trees so he did strips um he did circles he did diamonds he did trees for birds trees for forestry trees for windbreaks and he completely changed the farm it's it became like an english park uh, so he, com- he completely transformed the property. Uh, in this area, farmers routinely, during bad, cold, wet winters, lost lambs. Um, he, he, um, he had shelter from the trees. His lamb percentages went up. Any bugs that were in the pasture, because he planted all these new trees, there were birds, so he stopped, he stopped spraying. He had a dam. He, the next-door neighbours were having a... Um, uh, a wetland drained. He went over and asked the dozer driver to come to his place next. And he said, oh, you, what do you want me to drain? He said, oh, I want you to build me a wetland. And that's now filled with water birds that bring all these seeds for water plants in their guts. So they've now got birds on the property that hadn't been seen for 50 years. Amazing. But, so he runs more sheep, more sheep live. So his sheep survival rates were up. He then started to get income from forestry. Uh, the bird life came back, which made everybody happy, which I think you've got to, you've got to look at it and go, 
this is the best office in the world. You've got to love mm. the views yeah. that your farm gives you, I think. And um, he's now, the property is just amazing. And we're, But he was, his kids were teased at school. Local farmers used to call him the crazy tree man. And if there was anybody who didn't give a rat's about what anyone thought about him, it was John Fenton and couldn't have cared less, but he knew he was onto something. And he preserved the bandicoots. And, oh, look, it's just the most amazing story about a man who, um, what he created in 50 years, he created his own microclimate there. And while, he, while his son growled at him for not spending money on the yards and other things because it was all going into trees, he's now inherited a, a property that is, um, highly profitable and when wool went down well the forestry money was great and after our story went to where the unis were calling can we come and visit can you uh, a publisher called could you write a book about what you've done um, and you're never a prophet in your own land and by telling his story on landline and having all these people go say to him what you have done is amazing and then the locals sort of went well, maybe, maybe I'll Maybe he was right. <laughs> maybe he was right. But he was driven, utterly eccentric. Um, and, and that when you asked before about some of the predictors or the commonalities of people who are successful, some of them are quite, some of them can be eccentric, but that sort of um, is expressed in a way where they don't care what other people think. So it doesn't bother them at all. And so when I say, oh, you know, I'd say to him, well, you're brave. And he's, why am I brave? I don't care what old mate down the road thinks. He hasn't got all the beautiful birds. And the bird watching expert who came here and said, this bird has not been seen in this district for 70 years. And now it's back. And they had a rule that every evening at sunset, go and sit with the G&T and look out at this beautiful lake that he named after his wife, Lake Sicily. And the deafening noise of all the water birds that are there. And we sort of sat there going, you made this. This is amazing. But it was a profit. He turned an unprofitable property into a profitable one. So that was the guts of it. Yeah, right. That's, so that's actually an amazing story. Trees aren't easy to plant. They're bloody hard on the back. I've done a few <laughs> days around, like, university just to cover some fees and everything. It's hard work, so congrats to him. And, when, and now the know, family, the farm lives on. Yeah, and you put the chopper up and you see all the different shapes that he's, he's experimented with over the years and the ag department and the forestry department loved having him there because they'd rock up and say, can we try this? Go your hardest. Can we try this shape and or this variety and see what, what happens there? And I loved watching when we were filming there was a bird expert and John and they were walking down what I was talking about before with the strips of grazing with all the trees in between and all the varieties had been chosen because somebody had said well there are little birds that only that they only flit from tree to tree they don't do these great big long journeys to could you have something that where they're closer together and can they be this variety because they'll come and you know like the seeds or the nectar and the soundo, I look over at the soundo and he, he's smiling his head off. And I went, what are, you, what are you smiling about? And he's just put the earphones and it was just birds. And he got two old mates and there's, there's um, ewes and lambs sheltering from the wind 
there's green grass everywhere and you know you drive to the property and you're passing these places with barely a tree anywhere not much grass and you look at the sheep and you think who wants to be in western Queensland out sorry western Victoria in the middle of winter out there I know where I if I was a sheep I know where I'd rather be so and the fact that he had all the numbers to wrap around why this was a good thing to do was was fantastic and then yes. he did produce yes. a book too which you know when I got my copy I was like oh wow it's it's all down there yeah so and he wore a cravat and he had little Subaru Brumby and he had a tweed <laughs> jacket he really was a character out of a BBC Midsummer Murders or something you know absolutely and that's the characters that make up Australian agriculture something I'm trying to connect the dots to is you can be sustainable but also profitable at the same time in your work, you'd probably see a lot of kickback at you can't be profitable and sustainable at the same time, but you totally can. Um, and how that's achieved is probably your mindset in connecting the two. Like he didn't, his true north is probably getting his land back to where it needs to be, implementing the trees, seeing what works and what doesn't, trial and experimenting. Um, and then unknown, unknown to him, he probably did a lot better than he had thought. Yeah, and and to think like some of the regenerative ag practices that I, I see, you, you might get a result in 12 months, but John wasn't going to get a result for 20 years. It, you know, he had a blank canvas, literally. Yeah. And he had before photos and after. So we, we, we got the photos and went to the area and set up the camera and it was just mind-blowing. It really was. And... The cameraman on that shoot, which was probably back in 95, I think, every now and then he texts me. He says, every now and then that story pops in my head. That guy was a genius, wasn't he? Imagine the fact that, it, you know, his kids were teased at school. And yeah, it's nuts to think, isn't it? it? Yeah. Yeah, but I like your line. I might, you might steal that. The, what, what is your true north? And for him, it was doing right by his father-in-law who wanted him to do right by his daughter so that she had a beautiful place to live. Yeah. (laughs) Even better. And like, it has turned out quite profitable for the kids moving onto the farm, um, which is amazing to see and connect those dots. I think it's pretty important for farmers to see those stories. Um, No matter how wild or wacky the farmer is at the time, trying to get that up and how stupid we look as innovators trying to move on into newer and I think it's, pastures and you, and you need the cravat wearing um subaru brumby driving tweed jacket john fenton's of the world because then he what is it the rising tide floats all boats yeah. so he then he gets talked about and studied and university students vis- visit him and his ideas get disseminated so he drags everyone else through or, or the, the knowledge is now out there and people can say well does it work well John Fenton's been doing it 50 years here's the oh sorry it's dinner time <laughs> yeah, so I, I you know those early adopters the fact that they've got these hides of th- these thick hides where they don't care what anybody thinks um when they succeed then that they become leaders and they drag, they drag everybody else through. I like that idea. 
Yeah, that's it. And it will only go to show um, others further down the line. 20 years for the trees to be growing and prosperous and also 20 years of education for kids coming through the uni, uni systems or wherever it may land up, up in TAFE or something for other farmers to learn from. That's amazing. Thank you for sharing that story with us, Pip. Really good to see what strikes a chord and then also those sort of, that comes back to the framework of what makes innovative farmers, of course. So for... I don't think there's enough talked about about um, what a farm's biodiversity, like the joy that John Fenton got showing us his bandicoots. And I've been, you know, where you see the farm for what farms for wildlife and various yep. signs on people's properties. And I interviewed a farmer in the New England who helped his dad ring bark um, the trees on the place and every rue got shot. And he then replanted the place and, you know, the trees came back because they had a big dieback problem and they realised that they'd actually mucked up the balance, that once the tree percentage dropped below a certain number, then the bugs could come in and kill the rest of the trees because there weren't enough trees to support the birds, which kept the bugs under control. So the whole um, the whole network of various things that a farmer might not assume contribute to that the health of his property had gone out of whack. So he's now planting lots of trees, sort of fixed the problem. And at the end of the day, he's, you know, we'd stop filming and he said, can I take you to my special place? Yeah, of course. Grabbed a, grabbed a beer each and it was, you know, sun, sun was setting. And he said, I just want to show you my kangaroo family. And there's a little mob of roos of all different ages and joeys and all of that. And he just said, I come here, this is my quiet place. And my dad wouldn't have shared this place, this farm with them. And I'm happy to share this property with them because all the trees and all the wildlife, he now, he now knows, you know, the 50 varieties of birds that he's got. And he just likes sitting there sometimes, just observing the wildlife, whether it's the roos or the birds, and that makes him happy. And I think when you think about the stresses of farming, you've actually potentially got this beautiful place where you can sit back and just enjoy the nature. And again, if there's not a column that your accountant has allocated for that, but I don't know, true north, you know, what's in your heart. Um, so I think, yeah, it's, there are plenty of really good farmers I see who've made space for wildlife actually get a lot in return. It's good for them uh, and they feel like they're contributing and they you know, recently filmed um, on a farm where they're planting trees for koalas. I mean, the farmer nearly burst into tears saying, I'm doing something and, yeah. and I'm so proud and I'll be able to tell my grandkids I helped. And... So, yeah, I, I just think farmers underestimate what having wildlife on their farm and making room for it can give back to them. Yeah, definitely. And hopefully, like, this is not a thing that's going to be lost as we grow and develop. Like, we can optimise all of our land, but we can also work within what's, what's natural. Um, we're not just going to demolish all the roos and get rid of all the numbers. Um, mm. And then we can have our beautiful patch of the farm. And it comes back where you want to work is what you, like where we should be making your farm the most beautiful place to be. We're there 24-7. Yes. Um, if, 
And that's and one to, thing with farmers, you, you can never escape your work. Yeah. Like, uh, yeah, you, we have offices we go to and then we come home, whereas you guys, you're there all the time. And um, why not have it as a beautiful place and show your kids and your grandkids where the animals live and how they all interact and seeing John Fenton enjoy the bandicoots and the bird life. It's like a natural antidepressant. And then you watch them come and go over the seasons. And, yeah, so with all the pressures that farmers are under, I just think wildlife, I think wildlife is like a good old natural antidepressant. Absolutely. And as a farmer, we all need some downtime where we do enjoy ourselves and then we can reset and go again the next day, the next week, next year. Um, and then we can become better innovators from having that time to be able to reset and see what we can do. Looking at that horizon, like you said previously, it's really important to do as well. And like moving on, what's a piece of farm's advice you would give to any budding farmer out there, young or old? What would you tell the 70-year-old wool classes in agriculture? <laughs> what would I tell a young farmer? Um, watch landline. Um, Top tip. Yeah, hot tip. Uh, you heard it here first. I think it's about the mindset. The mindset leads to the accumulation of knowledge. Just every, just every time you get out of bed, make a commitment to yourself. My, my, I will be a better farmer, and this will be a better farm. Everything I do every day will lead to that. And I, I just think that's the best advice for any job. You know, I try and remind myself every Monday. Try and be a better journal this week than you were last week. And be a better interviewer, be a better story hunter, um, be a better writer. Um, because I think nobody wants to, well, I can't think of a job apart from maybe a surgeon. I can't think of I can't think of a job where you there is no benefit to wanting to be better tomorrow than you were today. So it's not yeah. a specific piece of get this sort of tractor or adopt regenerative agriculture. It's just just try and and be better tomorrow. Because then that opens up the you go to that conference. You might um, hook into that guy that you saw on Twitter who showed some vision during harvest, jump on a plane and go and visit him. Heard about this really cool consultant that someone's using. Go go and see them or study a course or just subscribe to newsletters that might say, well, there's a field day here. Just think, I think farming is a bit like my job. It's this constant tsunami of information which you've got to sift and sift the good from the bad, uh, the new from the news, the purportedly new that's really old, separate yep. that to find the really new um, and, and seek out the best. If you, you know, my dad always used to say, if you want to be a good writer, you've got to read. You've got to read good books. You've got to know who the great writers are. So he says, start out by reading everything from the crap to the great. And then when you work out with the great, just keep reading. So keep hanging with what are we? The, we're, the, we're the accumulation of the 10 people that we hang with the most. Yeah. Yep. Seek out the best. Make them your buddies. Get mentors. And be like John Fenton if you find your true north, whether it's regenerative ag or going to the farmer's market and doing your own label, be like John Fenton. Just 
do your thing and the naysayers will don't worry about them and that hopefully you don't stuff it up and the naysayers end up being right but um yeah that is key don't stuff it up um but that is great farms <laughs> advice thank you um for sharing that before we get wrap it up you know you mentioned a few books do you have any book recommendations for the bookworms out there um, about agriculture, I think, well, the, my favourite ag politics one recently was um, Gabby Chan's um, one, which is over there, Rusted Off. Um, I did love The Bush by Don Watson. He was um, Keating's um, speech writer. has a very thoughtful look at the bush. Nothing sort of super technical, if I have a look up here. Oh, yes, I do. English Pastoral by James Rebanks, who is a um, sheep man from um, the north of England. It's one of yep. the most extraordinary books I have ever read. And I got to interview him when he came out for um, the Sydney Writers Festival a few years ago. Follow him on Twitter. What he's doing with regenerative ag up there okay. on his, in the Lake, Lake District is extraordinary. And he's got... By telling a story, um, that I suppose that would be another thing I would say to a young farmer is I get teased about my love of Twitter. If you told me I couldn't have my Twitter account and I couldn't access it, I would be curled up in a ball with a straight jacket on. I just love it. I, I'm an information sponge and I love, like I love that how the grain growers, like the grain growers I think in Australia are the preeminent example of how you use Twitter for good. They're there at sewing time talking about sewing rates and fertiliser and machinery and how you fix stuff. And then it's um, harvest time, they're doing the same thing and they really connect with each other, ask each other questions and they use it for, for good and they have a lot of fun. And James Rebanks just, he decided to use Twitter. He wouldn't show any pictures of himself, it would just be his sheep and his dogs and the environment. And He's got so many followers around the world who are just fascinated at, like, lambing time. Um, a lamb might die and he says, why? And some dude in New York says, oh, mate, that's terrible, and he explains it. And th then someone from CNN turned up to do a story on him. That goes on the goes to air in, in the States. And I think the New York Times sent their ballet reporter <laughs> to do a story on him. And then a publisher sees the story, reads that story, and he's asked to write a book. And if he is like John Fenton, he's doing his thing. He was told at school that only dumb kids did ag. And it's about farming as a community. It's about him and his Herdwick sheep, which the Vikings had. Um, it's, it's an extraordinary book. And it's about how important farmers are. And follow him on Twitter. He generates lots of fantastic conversations about what's going on in ag in the UK, about whether farmers are appreciated or not, how they fit into the EU. Um, yeah. So, yeah, James Rebanks. And he's got another book coming out soon. Some one great recommendations. Yeah. One of the most thoughtful writers about agriculture um, and why it's important and where it's going. But, yeah, every sentence I'd be like, oh, this guy is a better writer than me. Better rather than any other. Yeah, it's annoying. No, it? I would kill to have written that sentence. It's just <laughs> the way he uses the English language. It's like watching Thorpey swim or 
something like that. But yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great. You don't like it. I don't want to be their friend, basically. Well, great. Thank you very much for those recommendations. We'll try find his Twitter and we'll tag it in so people can have a look what's going on as well. And also yours later down the track. There it is. There's Gabby's new one, Why You Should Give About Farming. She is one of the most thoughtful writers about agriculture and ag politics in Australia. I think that's a bit of a gap for Australia. I think we read um, like a lot of books about the UK, America, Canada, as such like that. I think like John Fenton himself, he wrote his book about what he did. And I think Australia is like sort of wanting crying out for Aussie made books that relates directly to our agriculture. It will go a long way to improving us if we're reading what's going on within our shores as well. Yeah, I think there's a lot of books out there. It's just about finding, you know, finding the time. As I said, I find there's a tsunami of information there and there's um, so, so many books that you could read. Um, and I think, yeah, this this is my my next one. And you know, I think this is a really important discussion. And people, yeah. you know, make, if if you want to be able to, because I think one of the big threats agriculture is facing is social license and anyone in animal agriculture. Like, hello, what are you doing to think about how you're going to deal with it? And I, I just think you can't just say my business is legal and I'm just going to keep doing it. You've got to be aware of what society's up to and how important um, uh, social media is in terms of, and I don't mean important good, I just mean um, the influence of social media in changing or in influencing how people who didn't, didn't give a thought to how pork or chicken was raised or didn't even know what the live export trade was, but because other people are ahead of the game and they're the anti-forces, um, I, do, I do see farmers and their representative groups being very flat-footed in dealing with that. So that's why I think reading something like Gabby and something like um, James Rebanks is, is important. Yeah, definitely. Be going outside the conversation. Yeah, be involved in that conversation because... Ag force is not going to fix your problems. New South Wales farmers isn't going to fix it. It's it, it needs it's a full court press with everybody being involved. Yeah, definitely, and you can move a lot quicker if you increase your own knowledge <coughs> as an individual farmer, mm. farming family, farming group. Yeah. Well, we'll start to wrap it up there. I'm not sure if you're aware. We usually run thirty to forty minute episodes, um, but I didn't want to stop the value that you bring to the table with your experience within on landline as a journalist within Australian agriculture. I see you having a really big impact on the industry um, and hopefully you see it that way as a bit of a profile within agriculture. Well, we have a big impact, I think, because farmers, um, the farmers we approach are very generous and they say, yes, you can come and annoy me for a day um, where I won't get any work done while you um, film. So I'm always extremely grateful to those because Australian farmers are very self-deprecating. And an American journal, ag journalist once said to me, don't know how you get any work done in Australia. Because uh, I said, oh, they're so, they're very, they'll always say, oh, the guy at the road's doing something better than me. And you've got to work sometimes quite hard for them to come on because they don't like putting their head up and, you know, they're a bit reluctant to say, well, this is what I'm doing and I think this is the best way. And the, my ag journal mate in America said, 
oh, they knock our door down. <laughs> They'll ring up and say, you should do a story on me because I'm really great. I said, that doesn't happen in Australia. <laughs> That's totally so, different in Australia. Even for the podcast, yeah. like I get knocked back. But no, nah, I yeah, don't want to do that. Yeah, I don't want to put my head up. Don't want anybody thinking I've got a big head. And it's like, but sharing information leads to conversations and that is so valuable. And um, so I'm really grateful to all those wonderful farmers who say, yes, Pip, come bring the crew. Um, I'm happy to talk about what we're doing. And because, you know, sometimes you're giving a heads up to somebody else in your industry about why you are successful. But um, so no, they're, they're very generous with their information and their time because having a landline crew, it's time consuming. Yeah, I I bet it is. The podcast for myself is pretty time consuming. And then the landline is next level production for it as well. Yeah. Although I do have a plea if farmers could be um, just a little bit better with their directions. <laughs> we get lost. You got lost and a few go, times then? Uh, yeah. Yeah. And one guy in WA went to his sheep um, property and as we're driving down and I'm reading out the instructions to the camera crew and I'm going, so we go left at the big red, at the big tree, right at the green water tank and the, the dro- cameraman's driving. He said, there's a bloody street name for every road we're going down. And I'm like, yeah, okay. Left at the Wiggly Bridge and yeah. we zoom straight <laughs> past his place and there are two giant cement merinos as tall as a house either side of his gate. He didn't tell us that. Of course not. That'd be too easy. <laughs> the directions. So now I have to say, pretend you're talking to a very thick 10-year-old and give me the directions. And I go, no, 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 no. I'm dumb. I'm just like an eight-year-old. I'm writing it down. So yeah. Please have a please have a um a mud map that you can email us. <laughs> Get someone else to check over the map before it's passed on to landline. Yeah. Great, thank you. So, lost time is when we can't film time. Yeah, absolutely. You're losing out on a bit more there. Optimizing your film mm-hmm. time, of course. Good to see. For yeah. the Farms Advice podcast, like yourself, who else would you like to hear on the podcast and why? Um, I thought about that before and I had an answer. Uh, I would like go to the biggest grain grower in Australia's property at harvest. Like whoever's got the most headers going at one time, I want, I'd like to hang for two days to show people it's night and day, the skills involved, who's feeding them, when do they sleep, That's a, and how do you manage all that. That's what I would love to um, do a story on always been and if I could have a chance to go and hang with go to a cattle station in the north that takes a lot of young uh, kids like in their gap year to be there at the start of when they they turn up and they might have just finished school and living at home or living in a boarding school be there for a week at the start a week in the middle and then the last week at the end of season I would love to see that progression of how a kid who's you know goes to school in Brisbane and is grown up in Brisbane goes and does his gap year. It's, um, and I think if I could, Trevor Lees, who runs Australian Country Choice, he's he's my 
next dream interview, which I'm working on. Okay, it's a race. It's <laughs> no, that, that's so great. Started, started with one property and then has a whole series and works a fully integrated supply chain, supplying coals, and just started with one property and a phone call. That's where it all starts. One property, optimize the first one, get on to the next one. Yeah. You know, it's feedlots, abattoir, exports, just an amazing businessman. And I, I love sitting down with people who've got that great business brain trying to tease out those, not a whole chapter about business management, but those great one-liners that really distill what is the essence about what makes them successful. And for some of them, it's about empowering their staff. For others, it's about making sure the staff are part of the, the journey and or part of the and they know what the vision is and we're all heading in the same direction and um there's a there's a, a thing that happens happens about once every three years i'll be leaving a location and i'll think well when the abc gives me the bullet one day i want to work for this person i don't care what job but they're just so inspiring with their business and maybe i'll be I don't know, answering the phone or making smoko, or but, but they're so inspiring. You just want to be in their world and whatever train that they're on, that everybody else is on, I want to be on that train as well. So I've got about four of those people. So when the ABC gives me a bullet, I'll be ringing them saying, can I have a job? I'll do anything. Even wall classing. That's great to see. Um, and it is pretty invigorating for those working under those innovators as part of the team heading towards their true north mm. so i think i don't know in your life but to a young farmer i would say find that mentor that that you get that gets you gets where you want to go and, and sometimes you don't even know where you want to go but having i've had great mentors in my um early years and still you know tap into Bring someone say, I'm really stuck with this script. The structure's just all wrong and I don't know how to, and they, they'll give you a hand. And so I think finding mentors, sometimes outside your family is important. Um, just Definitely I, so I advise outside idea. the family. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that's it. Thank you very much, Pip. I couldn't be happier to have you come onto the podcast and share your knowledge of the industries, the cross-sector learning that you've had and hopefully others can find that light bulb moment in what they find um, for their own farm or just within Australian agriculture. So thank you very much oh, well, thank for, you for coming on the show. I hope I've added some, some value because, as I said, I know a little bit about a lot of things. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm no expert on growing grain or sheep or wool or anything, but I have been very privileged to hang with some of the best in the country so absolutely you're more of an overseer of agriculture you've seen what's happening here and there um very lucky to have the job that you do um that you can go out there and see what you what you do see um and report the stories for us to watch on the sunday looking forward to the next sunday episode coming up um but for anyone that wants to reach out to you is the best place to find you on twitter yeah, yep, my email address is there and, um, yeah, and I think I've got on my bio thing, you know, send me a story tip and 
love it when farmers ring up and say, I think this is a story. Um, breaks my heart when I have to say, yeah, no, <laughs> but thanks for calling. But, yeah, there's, there's a bazillion stories out there and never have any trouble finding them. So, yeah, find me on Twitter and email away and join Twitter. And, and uh, one, one little thing, my favourite Australian tweeter is um, Shane Callis and his wife in South Australia. Yep. They fit totally into the category. I don't know if you follow them or not, but they fit in the category of people who are doing the heavy lifting for ag's reputation with city people. And they have, um, they're running their sheep and uh, replanting a rundown farm in South Australia. And they have their sheep dogs and their Anatolian shepherd who looks after the sheep. And they uh, report all through lambing season about who, how many have been born today and is Abla the Anatolian shepherd chasing more foxes and it is one of the best Twitter accounts you'll ever find and every farmer who meets Shane should, and Joe should buy them a beer and say thank you for the positive presentation of agriculture in terms of treating their animals and treating their land. Thank you for what you're doing because all your followers on Twitter are thinking better of ag and farmers as a result. So. If you follow three people on Twitter, James Rebanks, he's at Herdy, Herdy Shepherd, I think, and yep. Shane and Joe, and then me, <laughs> please. The, the big three for Australian agriculture. Start well, learning. Really start learning today, um, of course. And if you don't like Twitter, just it's just the best place to be. You can unfollow anybody who gives you the shits, or you find boring. And there's heaps of information, heaps of beautiful photos, heaps of good people there. And there are farmers you can you know connect with around the world. Yeah, definitely. So and you'll like find some hecklers on there, no doubt. But don't yeah. worry about them. Pass them to the side. Thank you very much. I, just, for... I have my little mental cravat of John Fenton. <laughs> so when the hecklers start, I just go, what would John Fenton do? And he'd go, <laughs> Doesn't matter. Yeah. But thank Doesn't you. No worries. Thank you, Pip. Sorry about all cats. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. We had a midway streak on the show. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the amazing episode with Pip Courtney and myself. She is the most down-to-earth person and really loves what she does. She brings the best innovators and optimizers of Australian agriculture to light each week, which is really important so that we can all feel inspired and motivated as an industry to level up. If we're to see successful stories on the series, then it should go to inspire others to do good as well. I hope that you're able to get something out of this episode. It was a marathon, but well worth it. Tell me what you thought of it in an Apple podcast and review, but possibly even five stars. That would be amazing so that we can help reach more farmers right across Australia. It doesn't take one minute. But until then, next Tuesday, keep on farming. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.